Welcome to the Mission North Shore podcast. If you'd like to know more about our ministry here at the Mission, visit us online at www.themissionnorthshore.org. Thanks for listening. God bless. Morning, church. How are you guys doing? You look bright-eyed and awake this morning, ready to go. All right, well, let's turn to Acts chapter 19 and we'll get after it. As we're turning there, we will pray for God's anointing upon His Word this morning. Father, as we've gathered together as Your church, as You've called us to do, we're here in obedience to You. We're here in faith, believing that You're here with us, and we're here to hear from You. Above anything, Lord, we want to hear from You. We recognize that this book that we hold in our hands are holy words from a holy God. And we ask that you would take these words now, speak directly to our hearts, right where we're at. You know where every one of us are at. You know every lack, every need, everything that we need to hear. We pray that you would speak to us right now from your precious holy word. We pray this together as a church in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, we are continuing to study in the book of Acts as we have been walking through this. Butch and Teva took you guys through chapter 18. Chapter 18 finished up Paul's second missionary journey, and it began his third missionary journey. So as we come to chapter 19 now, we come to Paul's third and final missionary journey, and he now fulfills a promise that he made at the end of his second missionary journey to come back to the Ephesians if God willed it. In fact, if you look at Chapter 18, verse 20, it says that the Ephesians there asked Paul to to stay a bit longer with them. He did not consent, but it says that he took his leave from them saying that I'll return to you again if God wills, and he then set sail from Ephesus. Well, apparently God willed it because now today in Acts chapter 19, what we find is Paul back in the city of Ephesus. And so what I'd like to do is just read through this text to chapter sorry to verse 7. So Acts chapter 19 beginning in verse 1 it says this. It happened that while Apollos was in Corinth, Paul passing through the upper country came to Ephesus and he found some disciples. I have that underlined that he found some disciples, but the question is who are these disciples and disciples of who? And he said to them Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? Very important question. Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said to him, no, we've not even heard whether there is a Holy Spirit. And he said to them, until what then were you baptized? And they said, unto John's baptism. This is John the Baptist. And Paul said, well, John baptized with a baptism of repentance telling people to believe in who was coming after him, that is, in Jesus. When they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid hands upon them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying, and there were about 12 men. Now, I want to make a clarification on verse 2 that's a little bit helpful because it kind of is a little misleading. The second half of verse 2 is not a great translation in most of our English translations because it leads us to believe that these guys had never heard of the Holy Spirit at all. So I use the New American Standard and it says, no, we have not heard whether there is a Holy Spirit. 
highly unlikely that these guys would have never heard that there's a Holy Spirit because the Old Testament is full of references to the Holy Spirit and the promise that the Holy Spirit would indwell believers in places such as Ezekiel chapter 11 and Ezekiel 36. So it had been prophesied that the Holy Spirit would dwell indwell believers later on. Beyond that, John the Baptist was their mentor, right? And John had pointed to the Holy Spirit multiple times, but one of them is in Luke chapter 3, verse 15 and 16, where it says, Now while the people were in a state of expectation, and they were wondering in their hearts about John, whether he was the Christ, John answered and said to all of them, as, he says, I baptize you with water, but one who is coming that is mightier than I, that I'm not fit to untie the thong of his sandals, he will baptize you with what? With the Holy Spirit and fire. So it's highly unlikely that these guys had never heard of, a ba- of the Holy Spirit whatsoever. A better translation, and many of your Bibles might have a footnote to this, mine does, is that we had not heard that the Holy Spirit had been given. So they were only familiar with John the Baptist ministry, and most likely that there would be a Holy Spirit given, but they were not aware that the promise had been fulfilled in Christ. So a little clarification just to make sure that we all understand what's going on here. Now, When Paul comes to Ephesus, he comes across this group of about a dozen guys. And it appears initially that Paul's having a little bit of a hard time trying to figure out what's going on with these guys. Something that they said or something that they did led Paul to believe that they had some level of exposure to biblical stuff, some level of biblical exposure. They're listed there in verse 1 as a disciple. So, Something about these guys made Paul think that they understood certain things. We don't know what it was. Maybe it was the way they talk among themselves. And Paul goes, wait a minute, these guys have had some biblical influence. They're, they're saying things that I recognize that, that, that shows that they understand. Maybe, you know, like us today, you run across a Christian, you often know they're a Christian because of the way they talk, right? We've got this weird way of talking as Christians, this Christianese stuff that we say that the rest of the world doesn't talk like we talk and we only talk among ourselves. It wouldn't make any sense if they heard what we say, right? So, so for example, if you're in food land and your friend walks up to you who has no Bible understanding whatsoever and they say, how are you doing, friend? And you go, man, I'm just over here trying to die to myself. They're like, what? Like, what does that mean? You're trying to die to you? Are you suicidal? What, what's wrong with you? Christians, we all understand what it means, but so maybe he heard something like that. We say these weird things like divine appointment, and we need traveling mercies, and the gift of singleness, and a hedge of protection, and you know, we're going to put a fleece around some out, you know, and, and we use these words of anointed and, and sanctified and glorified. Normal people that's walking around don't use these words. They don't say things like, we're going to lay hands on somebody unless they're about to get violent, right? But we say these things, and we're going to pray for somebody. So maybe he heard them talking to us. These guys, there's something Bible about them. They've they've been around. They've had some influence. Maybe it was something they were claiming because verse 1 tells us that they found some disciples. So maybe they met Paul and walked up to him and said, hey, that's really cool. You're a Bible teacher. We're into Bible stuffs. We're disciples as well. So Paul was able to recognize and discern some biblical affiliation among these guys. 
Yet at the same time, he also recognized that something was missing. Something was lacking. Again, maybe it was something that one of them said that tipped him off to say, hey, I don't think these guys completely connect all the dots. Or maybe it was something they did, the way their life was. And he goes, wait a minute, a disciple of Jesus wouldn't necessarily be doing that. Whatever it was, Paul seemed to sense that something wasn't connecting with these guys, that there were still some pieces missing. They knew some stuff, but then some stuff was definitely missing. And that can, I mean, that totally applies today with the people around us, don't we? We often come across somebody that we recognize has had some sort of biblical exposure to the point that we go, wait a minute, you got a little bit of Bible stuff going on. Maybe they they grew up with Christian parents or they went to a Christian school or or, or maybe they went to church for a little while themselves. And so we recognize something within them, yet they may say things or do things or live their life in a way that make us think, wait a minute, all the dots aren't quite connecting. You guys know what I'm talking about? You ever come across somebody where you, okay, that guy's got a little Bible stuff going on but something's not completely connecting with this person. Example, for me, I just, this past week, I'd been traveling, I went bow hunting in Idaho, and I was coming back, I was in the airport, and you know when they start loading the plane and and they call for the different gates, everybody kind of stands up and they start to crowd around where you're going to get on the plane and everybody's standing there. So I'm walking from a distance away and I notice that there's two guys standing together. And one of them has a gigantic gold cross on, big chain, giant gold cross. So I'm instantly like, that guy must really love Jesus. Because most of the people I see, I see a lot of you guys have like the little, little small gold cross because you love Jesus. But this guy really loves Jesus because he's got like a six inch gold cross. I mean, he's letting me know, you know, I'm down with Jesus. So I'm looking at this guy going, that guy must have you know, some Bible going on in his life. He's out there claiming it, big, you know, bold and proud. He's, he's saying, I'm with Jesus out here. And, and so I ended up in close proximity to him, his buddy. But as I'm standing next to him, close to him, I hear this guy cussing up a storm and saying all kind of vulgar things. So instantly in my mind, I go, whoa, something's not connecting. Something's not happening here. One thing leads me to believe that there's some Bible going on there. Another thing leads me not to believe that they're getting everything. I think that's where Paul is with these guys. Something's leading him to believe these guys have got a little Bible going on, and then something else is leading them to believe maybe they don't quite get it all. And so what appears to have happened with this group of guys that that Paul has run up on here in Ephesus is that they had been in the land of Israel during the ministry of John the Baptist. But then they had left the land of Israel before Jesus hit the scene, before Jesus' ministry, before Jesus' atoning death and resurrection, and certainly before the day of Pentecost. Because verse 1 calls them disciples, but it appears that they're disciples of John the Baptist, not not disciples of Jesus. They have some incomplete information. They knew the ministry of John, but not the ministry of Jesus. Because many, if not most, of John the Baptist's disciples left John and went to follow Jesus. We read that in Scripture in multiple places, but one of them is in John chapter 1, verse 35, where it says, Again, the next day, John, John the Baptist, was standing with two of his disciples, 
and he looked at Jesus walking, and he said, Behold the Lamb of God. And his two disciples left him and joined Jesus, one of which was Andrew, the brother of, of Peter. And then there's another occasion where, where somebody comes to John and says, hey, we've got a gigantic problem going on over here. You know, you've been able to draw these big crowds for all this time, but now Jesus is over here and everybody's going to him and not to you, John. And John goes, that's not a problem at all. In fact, that's exactly the way it was meant to be. I need to decrease so he can increase. So John's disciples were gravitating to Jesus as they learned more about what was going on. So it appears that these 12 guys left the land before Jesus hit the scene. So they got kind of incomplete information. And that's why we read in verse 4 that Paul says to them, John baptized with a baptism of repentance, telling people that they were supposed to believe in him who was to come after him, which was Jesus. And John was that long-anticipated forerunner of the Messiah, that herald of the Messiah. We understand who John the Baptist was because for hundreds of years prior to him hitting the scene, from places like Isaiah chapter 40 and Malachi chapter 3, it said that there would be this one who would come before the Messiah to announce his coming and to prepare the way for the Messiah. So John's whole job, John the Baptist's whole job was kind of this back to God movement for the nation of Israel, this get right with God movement in preparation for the Messiah to come so that when the Messiah hits the scene, everybody would gravitate to him and be able to follow him and be prepared. And so what was happening is all over Israel, people were going out to John the Baptist because they heard of this guy. As he preached, they realized their need to get right with God and that their lives weren't where they needed to be. They repented to John the Baptist and were baptized there in the Jordan River. Baptism is all about identification. It's about who you're identifying with. We're going to have a baptism later. And the whole thing that these people are going to be doing in just an hour or so, as we go down to the, to, to the ocean and baptize these people, is they're saying, my life now belongs to Jesus. I'm identifying with him. I'm saved, I'm born again, and I want the world to know it. And so baptism is an identification. It's a public statement of identification with a movement or with a message or with a teacher. See, often people make the mistake of thinking that baptism is exclusively Christian, that that's where it came from. But baptism was practiced in Judaism long before John the Baptist hit the scene. In fact, that's how if you, wanted, if you were a Gentile and you wanted to follow the, the God of the Jewish people and you wanted to convert to Judaism and become what was called a proselyte, you got baptized into Judaism. It was your identification. Now I'm with these guys. And so these 12 guys that, that Paul has come across here had gone out to John the Baptist. They'd heard his message. They go, you know what? Our life isn't where it needs to be. We're going to repent of our sin. And they got baptized, identifying with the message of John the Baptist. And then clearly they left the land before they got all of the information about the Messiah having come. And so upon meeting these guys, Paul clearly discerns now that something's missing in their understanding, that something's lacking, and he asks them a great question. He asks them a phenomenal question. He says, did you receive the Holy Spirit? He walks up to these guys and he goes, guys, 
I've been around you a little bit now, and, and I hear the way you're talking, and I see there's some Bible stuff there, but I see there's some stuff. Did, did you guys receive the Holy Spirit? The reason that this is such a good question is it cuts through all the things that might muddy the waters. It removes all the ambiguity of, uh, of what it means to have faith in something, and it gets right down to the issue of whether these guys are saved. It gets down to the issue because it's absolutely impossible to be a true believer in Jesus Christ, to be born again and saved and headed for heaven without the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit. Right? It's an impossibility. That's why it's such a wonderful question. He's not messing around with them. He's getting right to the heart of, wait a minute, are you guys saved? And here's the question that's going to steer me there. Did you receive the Holy Spirit? It's impossible, church, to be saved without the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit. That's what Paul wrote to the Romans. And he said in Romans chapter 8, verse 9, when he said this, he said, you're not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If, and that's a big if, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. What does it say right there? No Spirit, no saved. Pretty simple. He wrote to the Ephesians and said this, in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13, In him, in Christ, you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and having also believed, you were sealed in Him with the Holy Spirit of promise. Meaning that your salvation, your saving faith, happened simultaneously with the Holy Spirit coming and indwelling you. And that's why it's such a great question, because it doesn't leave anything to chance. Notice that Paul did not walk up to these guys and ask them if they're Christians. Because Christians in that day and in our day is pretty vague. It's undefined. It's ambiguous. It's open to one's interpretation. Jesus never asked you to be a Christian. He never laid out for you, hey guys, this is how to be a Christian. Jesus never used the word Christian not once in all of the Gospels. So it ends up this kind of ambiguous word. And so today in our culture, the cults call themselves Christians, even though they're denying the very word of God. And in our country, 83 to 86% of Americans claim to be Christians. But you only need a brief look at the state of our country to know that 83 to 86% of us are not born-again, spirit-filled followers of Christ, correct? Correct. It doesn't take long to look around and know that that's true. America would look vastly different if we were 83, 86% born-again, spirit-filled followers of Christ. So what does that mean? That means there's a whole lot of people out there that have had enough Bible exposure and claim an affiliation to Christ, but something's missing. And so Paul doesn't ask them if they're Christians. He doesn't ask them if they go to church, right? Because not everybody that sits in a church is saved, is it? He doesn't ask them if they believe in God. He doesn't ask them if they pray on occasion. He doesn't ask them if they feel like they're religious people. He asks them a question that doesn't leave anything to chance and cuts right to the heart of the issue. And he says, guys, did you receive the indwelling of the Holy Spirit? 
Do you have the Spirit of God living in you? Now, this is right out of the playbook of Jesus. Because in John chapter 3, there's a man that comes to Jesus named Nicodemus. And Nicodemus comes to Jesus with some questions. And he says, yeah, hey, Jesus, we see the things that you're doing and the things that you're doing nobody can do unless they're from God. And so I got some questions about what's going on over here. And, you know, I'm a Pharisee and questions about what you're going. Jesus doesn't deal with any of that. Doesn't even answer the question. Cuts right to the chase. And he says to Nicodemus, truly, I say to you, unless you're born again, you will not see the kingdom of heaven. Right? He doesn't mess with all of the, I don't know, do you have a, you know, do you carry a Bible? Or are you keeping most of the law? Or, you, you know, do you go to church on a regular basis? He doesn't mess with any of that, does he? He gets right to the heart and he says, Nicodemus, you got to be born again. Nicodemus goes, I'm not 100% what that means. And he says, how can a man be born again? He, he can't enter a second time into his mother's womb, can he? And Jesus clearly recognizes you don't understand what I'm saying. And Jesus answers and says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water, meaning a natural birth, which we have all had, unless one is born of water and of spirit, he does not come into the kingdom. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the spirit is of the spirit. What is Jesus telling Nicodemus? Nobody's making it to heaven. Nobody's going to heaven unless they are born again by the power of the Holy Spirit. If you're not indwelt by the Spirit, you're not going to heaven. That's what he tells him. Because it's that Holy Spirit. When God looks upon our faith and sees that we have the faith to be saved, it's the Holy Spirit that comes and indwells us and does the regenerating work of us being born again. That's what Paul is saying when he writes to Titus in Titus chapter 3. And he says that he, God, saved us, not on the basis of deeds in which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy. And how did he save us? By the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out upon us richly through Christ Jesus, our Savior. The Holy Spirit that comes in and does that regenerating work in our life and causes us to be born again, causes us to be saved causes us now to have eternity in heaven with Christ. So the question that every single one of us, myself and you included, need to ask ourselves is what? Not do we consider ourselves Christians. Not do we have a Bible and go to church on a regular basis. The question is not whether you understand the weird Christian lingo that we talk. And the question is not whether you got a fish bumper sticker on your car. What's the question? Did you receive the Holy Spirit? Did you receive the Holy Spirit? Do you have, right now, sitting here in this building, the Holy Spirit of God Almighty indwelling you? Now, the question is a great question. But it's also a question that assumes that you should know. Why, why would Paul ask it if they wouldn't have known it of themselves? So the question itself of did you receive the Holy Spirit assumes that you should be able to see the work of the Holy Spirit in your life. That there would be some change in you. That there would be some transformation. So Paul asking them this assumes that they would have known that they received the Holy Spirit and that it would be evident to them by the transformation that's taken place in their life. 
there's supposed to now be a new power in their life, correct? There's now supposed to be a new joy in their life, a new boldness, a new conviction of sin, a new comfort during hard times, a new desire. Their desires have been changed now that they have the Holy Spirit living in them and they desire to live more and more and more like Christ. See, the work of the Holy Spirit in someone's life should be evident to them and really to everybody else around them. It should be evident. You should be able to know this. Paul wouldn't ask the question if there was no way for them to know. And so it should be evident to them. And Paul would write to the Corinthians later in 2 Corinthians 13, 5 and say this. He would say, test yourselves. Don't take it for granted. Test yourselves to see if you're in the faith. Examine yourselves. Or do you not recognize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail the test? What does he say? He's saying you ought to be able to recognize the work of the Holy Spirit within you. That there ought to be these certain external identifying factors of a life of a genuine disciple of Jesus Christ. There ought to be new things in your life. There ought to be this this spirit flowing from you that is evident to you. Jesus said it this way in John chapter 7. He said, he who believes in me as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. What was he talking about? But he spoke of the Spirit. But this he spoke of the Spirit, whom, uh, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for the Spirit was not yet given in John chapter 7 yet, because Jesus was not glorified. What is he saying there? He's saying everybody that believes in him, as the scriptures say, there's supposed to be something flowing from you. Not a trickle from the faucet, but rivers of living water coming from you. And it's the spirit that he spoke of. There's meant to be something evident about your life to yourself and those around you that you belong to Christ. Now, This would have been very well known to Paul, wouldn't it? He knew very well the transforming power of the Spirit. When he runs across these guys, they're not talking uh, about something that's vague and hard to understand. Paul's like, let me ask you a question about the Holy Spirit because I've seen what the Holy Spirit's done in my life. He went from being the self-proclaimed chief of sinners, the worst of all sinners, persecuting Christians, arresting Christians, giving hearty approval when they were killed. He went from that guy to being mightily used by God, one of the most prolific missionaries ever and writing half of the New Testament. He knew what the Holy Spirit did in somebody's life. It was evident in his life. Paul had rivers of living water flowing from his life, didn't he? And so when it's absent then, from someone who claims to be a disciple, it gets a little confusing, doesn't it? It's like the guy with the big gold chain. When it's absent from somebody, you go, wait a minute. Something's not connecting for me here. And Paul is here with these guys going, guys, something's not connecting for me here. Did you receive the Spirit? Now, of course, it's not very politically correct these days to ask people questions about their faith, is it? It's far more politically correct to keep quiet about your faith, let people keep quiet about theirs, and 
and not even bring it up in, in, in polite culture of our day. And if you do bring it up, you're often going to hear people say, you know, why are you judging me and why do you criticize them? Who are you to ask about my faith? You can't ask people, did you receive the Holy Spirit? But Paul was too concerned about the souls here to worry about being politically correct with people. He, he was more concerned about these 12 guys and whether they were saved than whether they'd be offended by his question. He, he clearly discerned that something wasn't connecting and he wanted it to connect for them so that they would know his amazing, gracious, beautiful God. So Paul asked him, did you, did you guys receive the Spirit? Paul was bold like that. I mean, that's why... We, we, Two chapters ago in Acts chapter 17, when Paul was in Athens and he was invited to come speak before these guys, these guys are like, we don't know what you're talking about. It seems like you're talking about some strange God. Would you come over to this giant stadium that we have here and speak to a whole bunch of us about it? What did Paul do? He stands up and he says, listen, I can tell you, and he says it boldly, he says, I can tell that you guys are extremely religious people here in the city of Athens. But he says, I can also tell you that you're extremely religiously misguided here in the city of Athens. Let me tell you about Jesus. Because eternal souls were too important for him to beat around the bush. And so he asked them, did you receive the Holy Spirit? And once he got to the bottom of the issue and found out what the problem was, that they had not received the Spirit, they didn't have knowledge of Jesus and, and all that had taken place, what does he do? He tells them about Jesus. And they get saved. I wish it was recorded. It's not recorded as to what he said to them, but I'm sure that he told them that Jesus was the fulfillment of all of these Old Testament prophecies, proving that he was the Messiah, just as their mentor John the Baptist had said. And I'm sure that he told them of, of Jesus' atoning death on the cross for their sins, just as the Old Testament had said. And I'm sure that he told them of Jesus' burial, just as the Old Testament had prophesied, and told them that three days after Jesus was buried, he rose from the grave in victory, in glory, just as the Old Testament had said, and just as Jesus himself, he said he would do. And that now he stands there ready for anybody to come to him by faith and to grant to them eternal life. That they're going to be saved from the judgment to come. And that in that moment, they'll receive the Holy Spirit to live a life for Christ. I wonder if he said something similar to what he said in the, to the Romans in Romans 8, chapter 11, when he said, if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Jesus, from the Christ, or raised Jesus Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through the Spirit that dwells in you. Whatever he said, it worked. Because these guys turned to Jesus, and why wouldn't they? Is there any better offer in the world than Jesus and what he offers to us? Why wouldn't they turn? So now that they have complete information, they come to Jesus. They say, oh, we didn't know that part. We, we only knew the John the Baptist part. And there are a lot of people around us that are just like that, aren't they? They've only got some of the information. They, 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 they've got a little bit, enough to know that there's a God, there's a, but they need to know about Jesus. They need to know that God left heaven and came to earth. They need to know that this God loves them so much that he would live the perfection of heaven and come into this sin-soaked world because he loves us so much that he didn't want us to die in our sin without a way out. And that when he hung on that cross, 
that the entire wrath of God for our sin was placed upon Jesus Christ in that moment and he paid every single ounce of our sin and our shame and our guilt right then and there. And he did exactly what he said he would do. That he'd be put to death and then three days later he would rise in victory and glory to prove that he and he alone holds life and death in his hand. That's what the world needs to hear. To which these guys heard. They believed and they were baptized. Now, for application as we wrap this thing up, I was thinking about it like this for, for myself. I was trying to think, how, how exactly does this apply to me? And this is the way I thought about it for myself. The life of a disciple of Jesus Christ is supposed to be characterized by the work of the Holy Spirit in you. If you're saved, if you're born again, if you're headed for heaven, the Holy Spirit lives in you right now, correct? That's good theology. Your life is meant to be characterized by that Spirit that lives within you. But there's even more to it. It's not just the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, but it tells us in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18, to be filled with the Holy Spirit. That means that, that in, and it's in the present tense participle there in Ephesians chapter 5, 18, it means to be being filled, to constantly be being filled with the Holy Spirit. So it means that you didn't just receive the Spirit just this one time when you got saved in the indwelling of the Holy Spirit that regenerated your life. You've also been given access to the Holy Spirit to be filled with the Spirit on a regular basis for power, for comfort for boldness, for whatever you need, the Spirit can come into your life and give you that for that moment in which you need it. It's not just that when you got saved, you received the Spirit and that was it, but God has been so good and so gracious to us that He looks upon our lives and He says, if you'll follow me and pursue me and submit to me and continue to return to me, I'll freshly fill you with the Holy Spirit for Christian life and Christian mission. Like, I'll be there for you. Like, like you're going to run up on these things that are going to be difficult, and I'll give you my spirit to get through that. And you're going you're gonna to have these, these moments where you don't have any joy. I'm going to give you joy through my Holy Spirit. And you're going to run up on friends that need to hear about Jesus. And I'm going to give you the boldness at that moment to tell them about Jesus. And anything that you need, you turn to me. I've got spirit for you. And so the life of a believer, a disciple of Jesus, is to be characterized, isn't it, by this Holy Spirit within us. There's meant to be a certain level of power. That's what Jesus promised in Acts 1.8 when he said, when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, you're going to receive power. And that's what Jesus was talking about in John chapter 7, that there's these living waters that are going to flow from you. This Holy Spirit is supposed to be evidence, supposed to be flowing from your life. The life of a believer is meant to be characterized by the Holy Spirit, which is within us. So here's what I thought about that. If Paul came up upon me, like I just met him. I mean, obviously he's clearly gone and waiting for us in heaven. But, but if Paul came up upon me as he did these 12, or, or anybody for that matter that knows anything about being filled with the Spirit, if they came up upon me, would it be evident to them that I'm filled with the Spirit? Would it be evident to them that I'm indwelt by the Spirit? Or would I confuse them? And would they have to ask the question? Would they look at me and go, 
I see some Bible stuff about you, but there's some stuff missing. The way you talk, the way you run your life, the way that I see some things, but some things aren't connecting. Or would they be able to come up to me and say, man, I see rivers uh, of living water flowing from your life because that's where I want to be. I'm assuming that's where you want to be as well. Rivers of living water. And it's simple, isn't it? That, that submitting to God, coming to Him. I get up in the morning before my feet hit the floor. I say, Lord, fill me with your Holy Spirit for whatever you got this day. I need your Spirit. I can't do what you've called me to do. I can't be what you've called me to be without your Holy Spirit. Then you get up and you open that Bible and you say, Lord, speak to me from your Word. Your Word is holy. It's perfect. And whatever you say to me in this right now, that's what I'm going to do with my life. And I need your strength and your Spirit to be able to carry that out. And whatever comes along today, I need the power of your Holy Spirit to walk through it. The temptations, the, the bumps in the road, the difficult parenting, the, all of it. I need you. I can't do what you've called me to do without you. Right? And God gives His Spirit to you for that time. So, so as you look at your life, as I've been looking at mine this week, is it characterized by the Holy Spirit in you? Would the people that you came into contact this week, if, if they were like Paul, would they be, man, that, that guy's filled with the Spirit, or would they have to ask the question? Would they be confused at your life or mine? And so as we go into a time of worship now, it's a really good time to come and resubmit, just to, just to come and say, Lord, I recognize there's been times in my life this week where the Holy Spirit wasn't very evident got into this and I got into that and I've got myself messed up over here. So I need forgiveness. It's a time of repentance and getting right with God so that, that when you leave this place, that the rivers of living water are flowing from your life to tomorrow when you go to work and in your neighborhood and in your school and in your family. Your life is characterized by, by one who's filled with the Spirit, because another thing is going to happen. People like Paul, who, who understand what it means to walk in the Spirit, will recognize that you're filled with the Spirit, but people that don't have a clue what's going on are going to come up and say, something's different about you. Something's different about you. You didn't get mad when you should have got mad. You didn't steal when you should have stole. You didn't cheat when you could have cheated. You, you didn't take that, and you didn't get tempted over there. And they're, they're going to say, what's so different about you? Why am I struggling and you're not? And so, because I can answer the question that Paul asked, were you filled with the Spirit? And so as we meditate on that and as we worship, let's submit to the Lord. Let's meet Him new and fresh right now and walk out these doors freshly filled with His Holy Spirit. Um, I, I feel prompted to ask this morning, I, I didn't do it first service, I'm going to ask second service, Maybe you came in this morning and you go, the light just came on for me. And I, I want to ask if you've never come to Jesus, if you'd like to do that now. Maybe you're where these disciples were when they met John the Baptist and they only had part of the information. Maybe you've been walking around this world with part of the information and, and you just needed to hear that Jesus died for your sins, that he rose to give you victory over death, and that right now you can have the peace of Christ and the Holy Spirit within you. I want to ask if there's anybody here this morning that wants to make that commitment, just to stand up right where you are. And I understand that it's a, a bold commitment, 
I understand that it's a scary thing to do. But Jesus said, if you deny me before my father, I will deny you. Or if you deny me before men, I'll deny you before my father who is in heaven. And he says, if you confess me before men, I'll confess you before my father in heaven. So I want to ask right now, is there anybody that wants to take a stand to be saved, to be born again, to repent of their sin and come to Jesus this morning? Just stand up right where you're at. It's a bold thing to do and it's a scary thing to do. Amen. God bless you. Bold and brave. Is there anybody else this morning? Amen. God bless you. Anybody else this morning before we pray? You know, it's, God does that. I didn't do it first service. I didn't feel it, but he told me this service. It was time to do that. And, uh, and I want you to know, I'm, I'm going to pray with you. But what this means is that, that your eternity just changed from hell to heaven. And you will be indwelt by the Holy Spirit and... and Christ is now your King, your Lord and your Savior. And um, so I want to pray with, with you guys now. Maybe you bow your head and pray with me. Father, we come to you humbly. Lord, we repent of our sin. Lord, we recognize that we've been walking a life apart from you. And we now turn and give you our life. We surrender our life back to you. And we thank you, Lord, for dying on the cross. And we thank you for rising to prove that you have eternal life in your hands. And in Jesus' name, we commit our life fresh and new to you. Amen. Amen. God bless you, guys.